Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The American Civil War Part Two: The Hard Hand of War. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Northern Home Front. The Civil War was not just fought on the battlefield, but it was also supported by numerous people and organizations in the North. These efforts profoundly shaped the conflict and held long-lasting consequences for American history. The first group I want you to know is the Sanitation Commission. They were a benevolent organization, meaning a charity, designed to improve the overall conditions of army life and to keep soldiers from getting sick and dying. They improved the food and living conditions, providing soldiers with blankets and improving sanitation. This organization was led by men, but women were critical for getting things done. An example of this is Dorothea Dix in the Eastern Theater. She was so ferocious in getting her requests met to help soldiers that people nicknamed her Dragon Dix. Mary Ann Bickerdyke is another example for the Western Theater. She was so powerful and influential at making sure soldiers were taken care of that when some top generals complained about her to the overall commander, William Tecumseh Sherman, he simply threw up his hands and said, quote, She ranks me. End quote. While these women performed important bureaucratic functions, women on the ground saved many soldiers' lives. An example of this is Louisa May Alcott, a regular northern lady who served as a nurse in a Union hospital. She wrote an influential book called Hospital Sketches, about Union hospitals that brought about the harsh reality home to many Northerners, and she later wrote the novel Little Women. Claire Barton is another famous nurse, though she often cared for troops on the front lines. She was once so close to the battleground that while working on a soldier, a bullet passed through the sleeve of her dress and killed the patient she was working on. Again, the point is that this war is largely fought on the backs of women and without their contributions, the Civil War would not have been possible for either side. Claire Barton, later on in life, founded the American Red Cross in 1881. So as you can see, one person can really make a difference. Another organization I want you to know is the U.S. Christian Commission, and their goal was to bring Christ to the soldiers. They supplied Bibles, religious tracts, and they sent Protestant preachers to regiments who did not have chaplains. They held prayer meetings and supplied soldiers with writing materials to communicate back home. But not everyone was united on the home front. Politics, as with everything, interfered in the conduct of the war. Copperheads are peace Democrats in the North, and they played to the racial resentments that the Emancipation Proclamation created. They challenged the administration's war aims in the conduct of the war, and they argued for an immediate peace, even if it meant sundering the nation. So party politics does not go away in the North during the Civil War. Some historians believed it helped, but I believe it actually hampered the war effort, as it created tensions with civilians at home and amongst the soldiers in the field. Another example of problems back home was conscription in July of 1863. All men, 18 to 40 years old, were supposed to enter a lottery, and if their number was called, they were drafted into the United States Army. 
but there was a loophole. If you paid a $300 commutation fee and hired a substitute, you could dodge the draft. This greatly angered working-class people, especially immigrants, and it led to significant protests in Boston, Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul, and New York City. In fact, from July 13th to the 15th, the New York City draft riot erupted. Workers and immigrants reacted against racism, poverty, and the draft by burning, looting, and lynching African Americans. 300 people were injured and 120 killed, including six African Americans who were lynched for nothing more than being black. Troops had to be brought in from Gettysburg in order to put down the riot. And in fact, this riot is portrayed in the movie Gangs of New York. In the end, conscription was pretty negative for the North as it was with the South. It created lots of social and political unrest, and many people who were drafted were not well enough to serve and were thus given exemptions, and a large number of draftees simply deserted or hid from the draft. Of the 168,640 men procured for the Union Army through the draft, 117,986 were substitutes, leaving only 50,663 who were actually drafted into the service. And while some of these men fought bravely, many simply got their money and ran away at the first chance. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Southern Home Front. Things were even worse on the Southern Home Front. There's a popular image of the war, of a united Southern populace against a hostile and barbaric Yankee invader. And in fact, this is far from the truth, because from the beginning, the South was divided over their loyalties. And what is more, the actions of the Confederate government alienated the majority of Southerners under their jurisdiction. First, they instituted conscription before the United States did. And like the United States, they put in a pro-elite provision to get around the draft. One such policy was called the, quote, 20 Negro Law, end quote, which is an exemption from the Confederate draft if you owned more than 20 slaves, which meant you and your sons did not have to serve. This was widely seen as scandalous, for planters had pushed the South into secession and now wanted to avoid service altogether. Many soldiers, like Sam Watkins, wrote things like, quote, A law was made by the Confederate State Congress about this time, allowing every person who owned 20 Negroes to go home. And it gave us the blues. We wanted 20 Negroes. Negro property suddenly became very valuable, and there was raised the howl of a rich man's war and poor man's fight. The glory of war, the glory of the South, the glory and pride of our volunteers had no charms for the conscript. End quote. Thus, during the war, North and South, soldiers complained that the conflict was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Another problem on the Confederate home front was of regressive taxation policies that hurt the poor and women who already shouldered the brunt of the conflict. As Southern armies starved, the Confederate State Congress instituted a program of tax-in-kind, where Confederate authorities seized crops from poor whites in return for worthless Confederate dollars. Again, this policy fell disproportionately on poor and yeoman whites, while their rich neighbors used their political connections to avoid the same destitution. I want you to go and click on the link, and you should see a clip from the movie Free State of Jones about what this might look like. 
Okay, so have you gone and watched the clip? Most families would not have fared as well as the one that you just saw. As Southern soldiers battled hard at the front, they were inundated with letters from home, decrying their starvation and dissatisfaction with the conditions around them. And combined with the accounts of Yankee military occupation and raids, Confederate soldiers, many of them conscripts, deserted in great numbers. Desertion was so bad that Robert E. Lee stated at several points in the war that half of Confederate soldiers were absent from the army without leave. Another major issue was the continued trouble of Unionists. Unionists are Southerners who did not support the Confederacy, though many did not necessarily support the Union either. They just wanted to be left alone. But instead, they were viciously persecuted by Confederate authorities. In one account, a Unionist family who hit a deserter had a pack of dogs tear the mother apart in front of the children as a statement to others. Unionists often banded together with escaped slaves to fight against such persecution. They congregated in some regions, like Jones County, Mississippi, to the point where they effectively ran off Confederate officials and troops for much of the war. And you can go watch the movie Free State of Jones to see a good example of this. With the Confederate Army hemorrhaging men, more and more individuals launched small raids against both Union and Confederate authorities, as well as began looting the local populations. This guerrilla warfare became a paramilitary conflict in almost every single southern state. Bands of Confederate guerrillas, called partisans, bushwhacked Union patrols, cut telegraph lines, and fought against Unionists intent on doing the same against the Confederacy. Various communities supported some guerrilla units, but the general populace largely was subject to the brutality and looting of guerrillas on either side. With the army marching on its stomach, the Confederacy was gripped in a series of food shortages, which caused bread riots throughout the South. Despite the need for food, planters still planted cotton in order to maximize profits and refused even the most minimal efforts to have them place the people above their own personal profit. As Southern families starved, cotton piled up on Confederate storehouses, and cries of food shortages caused more desertion and dissatisfaction among even the most die-hard Confederates. Across the South, a series of bread riots were led by women demanding food since their men were at the front. And in every major southern city, women had rioted in the streets over the fact they could not feed their starving children while their men were at the front. The Confederate government could do nothing to help. So individual Confederate states passed some of the country's first state relief laws, which gave welfare and aid to destitute families. It is ironic that many of us today associate welfare with liberals. But isn't it interesting to note how Confederates, who embraced states' rights, were the first to do welfare to their own people? And note the irony, as Southerners never would have allowed this under the Union, but because of the war, they are willing to forget some of their political opinions to keep the war going. In numerous cases during the war, the doctrine of states' rights greatly hampered the war effort. Now, as I made clear, fire eaters did not secede over states' rights, but over having stronger federal government protection of slavery. But under the Confederacy, states' rights did become a thing, and it hurt the war effort. 
This is because states like Georgia refused to share material with the Confederate government. So while Confederate armies starved, food sat in warehouses, and while men walked barefoot, shoes filled stagnant trains. The people, women and children, continually suffered the hardest condition from the lack of relief efforts on the part of the Confederacy, crippled by states' rights. Lastly, as Union troops marched into the South, they took over more and more Southern cities. This military occupation imposed oaths of allegiance and martial law, but brought an end to food shortages and chaos, as law and order was restored and Union rations filled empty Southern bellies. Guerrilla warfare could be pushed back outside of the occupied cities, but the surrounding countryside was still rife with bushwhackers. In all cases, women again served the critical role as nurses, clerks, laborers, and bore the majority of the war's burdens. This is a standard feature of human history. Women saddled with the burdens of supporting a war they had little say in. Again, the point of this lecture slide and my argument is that the memory of the conflict purposefully omits these problems on the Confederate home front. And thus, the lost cause was born. A false memory of unity of the South in support of the Confederacy. A lie about the cause of the war. A demonization of blacks and Yankees as barbarians who raped the South and left her prostrate before them. This lost cause was created for political purposes in the 1880s, 90s, 1910s, 1950s, and 1960s. It served as a memory that could be marshaled against civil rights and black and poor white participation in politics. And it is still enshrined in textbooks, family stories, the media, and popular politics to this day. The greatest trick that elite ex-Confederates ever did was rewriting history and convincing the common people of the South that slavery and secession were their friends. It was not. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The End of 1863. Things out West are not going well for the Confederacy. Grant had captured Vicksburg, and raids were conducted deep into Mississippi, and Confederate forces were just barely holding on in central Tennessee. In a series of brilliant maneuvers, Union General William Rosecrans maneuvered Confederate General Braxton Bragg out of Tennessee and south of Chattanooga into Georgia. There, Bragg turned to fight Rosecrans at the Battle of Chickamauga from September 19th to the 20th, 1863. At the Battle of Chickamauga, both sides fought in thick woods, which prevented the generals from observing most of their movements. The two armies clashed in a few open fields in dense thickets as fighting raged for hours and more men were fed into the fray. By accident, Rosecrans opened a gap in his lines, right in front of James Longstreet's corps, recently arrived from Virginia. Longstreet's men stormed through this opening, and the Union Army and Rosecrans routed, except for two corps under Brigadier General George B. Thomas. Thomas held out for the rest of the day before he ordered a withdrawal and safely got his men back to Chattanooga. As a result of this battle, the Union lost 16,000-plus men and the Confederacy 18,000 men. It was a Confederate victory, and Rosecrans was removed from command due to his fleeing the field. 
but Bragg failed to follow up on his victory, and the men and generals in his Army of Tennessee loudly decried it as a failed opportunity. You will see that Confederate infighting plagued the Western armies throughout the war. While this is going on, the two armies engaged in the Chattanooga Campaign from October to November 1863. Bragg surrounded Chattanooga, and both sides suffered in the cold and from lack of food. Grant and Sherman's army came to the rescue after their victory at Vicksburg, and the two sides stared down one another. While this was going on, a massive religious revival took place that winter, as religious fervor swept through the ranks. Spontaneously, and as a result of this revival, on November 24, 1863, Union troops decided without orders to engage at the Battle of Lookout Mountain. When one commander asked who ordered the attack, another officer responded, No one, sir. Once those boys get started, all hell can't stop them. The Union won the battle, and the following day, at the Battle of Missionary Ridge, the Union forces pushed the Confederates back from Chattanooga and relieved the beleaguered men inside. These twin U.S. victories in the West cut the Confederates off from Tennessee and set the stage for the next great campaigns. Those campaigns would see Grant come east, while Sherman took command of three Western armies as he prepared to advance into Georgia to take Atlanta. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Grant Comes East. 1864 was a critical year, especially with the U.S. presidential election looming in November. In March, Grant was instructed to come to Washington, D.C., where he would serve as the general-in-chief of all Union armies. Congress made Grant the first lieutenant general since George Washington. Grant checked in to the Willard Hotel and then proceeded to the White House, where he outlined his new strategy. Grant sought to implement a Union grand strategy that some have called a war of exhaustion. He planned to wage a coordinated war on multiple fronts, and his goal was to destroy the Confederate economy and infrastructure so its armies could not be supplied. He knew if he destroyed the Southern people's will to fight, not by killing civilians, but by destroying the resources on which they depended, he could end the war quicker and with less loss of life. Complicating this was the fact that the Northern public was war-weary, and Grant and Lincoln knew that Union forces needed victories to convince the people to vote for Republicans who would see the war to its end. Grant's strategy was to wage war on five different fronts across the South. Three of the five failed or got bogged down. Two ultimately succeeded, those led by Grant and the other by his right-hand man, General William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman conducted his Atlanta campaign, an attack southward into Georgia to capture Atlanta. Meanwhile, unlike his predecessor Henry Halleck, Grant would not stay in Washington to direct the war effort. Instead, he personally accompanied the Army of the Potomac, which officially continued to be led by George Meade, though Grant was in overall command. From May to June 1864, Grant conducted his Overland Campaign. Grant's goal was to move toward Richmond and destroy Lee's army. It resulted in six weeks of almost non-stop fighting, much of it in the Virginia woods. At the campaign's onset, Grant had 115,000 men 
and Lee had 85,000. There are several battles we will briefly discuss. The first is the Wilderness, from May 5th to the 6th. It was fought in a large, overgrown wooded area near Chancellorsville. While fighting in dense brush and undergrowth, both armies got confused and broke apart. Fires erupted and burned hundreds of men to death. After two days, the Union lost 17,000 men and the Confederates 11,000, 17% for each army. After the battle, Grant ordered his troops to move southward, and they actually cheered him. McClellan and other Union generals had retreated when confronted with setbacks. But Grant was different. He intended to press forward, and his men loved him for it. The next battle of the Overland Campaign was at Spotsylvania Courthouse from May 8th to the 20th, 1864. Lee's army dug in and threw up field fortifications. Union forces charged these fortifications, and intense fighting took part day in and day out. The musket fire was so intense that many balls cut down an oak tree 22 inches thick. While Union forces created innovative techniques to carry these fortifications, they failed to dislodge the rebels. As a result of the battle, 18,000 Union and 12,000 Confederates died. Grant again moved south and reached Cold Harbor on June 3rd. But by the time Grant's army arrived, Lee's Confederates had already dug trenches. Grant ordered an assault anyway. Before attacking, Union soldiers pinned slips of paper with their names and addresses on them. In the few hours of fighting, the Union suffered horrific casualties. 1,500 Confederates and 6,000 Federals perished after fruitless bloody charges against well-prepared fortifications. Grant later regretted ordering the attack, and wrote, quote, I have always regretted that the last assault at Cold Harbor was ever made. No advantage whatever was gained to compensate for the heavy losses we sustained. End quote. There is an apocryphal story from this slaughter. After the battle, a bloodstained diary of a Union soldier was found. Its last entry read, quote, June 3rd, Cold Harbor, Virginia. I was killed. So as you can see, many knew they would die, but they made the charge anyway. And that is true bravery. Due to all of these casualties, Northern papers labeled Grant as a butcher for his tactics. But technically, Lee was actually worse off. If you fought in Lee's army, you had a greater chance of dying than you did in fighting in any other unit in American history. The final casualties for the Overland Campaign were devastating. The Confederates lost 36,000 men to the Union's 65,000. But remember that proportionally, the Confederates were losing just as many men, and the Confederates did not have the ability to bring in new troops like the Union did. In June of 1864, Confederates retreated into the trenches protecting Petersburg, Virginia. Grant could not attack anymore. His men had suffered too much, and he understood the futility of attacking prepared entrenchments. As a result, Grant laid siege to Petersburg, a campaign that ultimately lasted nine months. Click on the link below and you will see a link to the American Battlefield Trust YouTube website, and there's an interactive video that shows soldiers' life in the Petersburg trenches. It is superb, and use your cursor or finger to look around uh, on this interactive video, and you can see lots of different perspectives. 
please advance to the next slide entitled War and Politics. Meanwhile, the Northern public was growing extremely war-weary. The Overland Campaign had led to much bloodshed and then ended in a siege which was going to take a while. Lincoln was running for re-election and was hoping to get some Democratic and Southern support. So he dumped his vice president, Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, and chose the Tennessee Democrat Andrew Johnson, the military governor of Tennessee, and the only Southern senator who did not resign the Senate after secession. The choice would haunt the GOP, African Americans, and would later cripple Reconstruction. But more on that later. The November elections were fast approaching, and many Northern Democrats were clamoring for some sort of negotiated peace. The Democratic Party nominated General George B. McClellan for president, and in a letter accepting the nomination, Little Mac wrote, quote, The Union must be preserved at all hazards, and he could not look in the face of my gallant comrades and tell them that their sacrifices had been in vain, end quote. But anti-war Democrats wrote into the party platform a demand for an immediate ceasefire and a meeting to negotiate a peace treaty. Democrats also campaigned against the Emancipation Proclamation, against Reconstruction, and in favor of white supremacy. They even invented a new world called miscegenation, which means the mixing of the races, basically saying that Lincoln wanted to destroy the white race. As late as August 1864, Lincoln believed he might lose the election. We see this on August 23rd, when Lincoln drafted a secret memo. It said, quote, This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be re-elected. Then, it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on the grounds that he cannot possibly save it afterwards, end quote. But then, Lincoln got lucky. After several months of bloody stalemate in northern Georgia, Sherman's army flanked the Confederates defending Atlanta and forced them to abandon the city. On September 2nd, 1864, Sherman wired Washington, D.C., quote, Atlanta is ours and fairly won, end quote. Sherman's victory, combined with Union victories in the Shenandoah Valley, raised northern morale. And in November, Lincoln won 55% of the popular vote and 212 to 21 electoral votes. Remember, only northern states voted, as well as their soldiers in the field, 78% of whom voted for Lincoln. Lincoln's re-election meant at least four more years of war if necessary, which was bad news for the Confederates. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Make Georgia Howl. So I already alluded to this, and I cannot go into great detail, but from May to September 1864, General William Tecumseh Sherman marched from Tennessee and outmaneuvered the Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston all the way to the gates of Atlanta. Jeff Davis was so furious with Johnston that he replaced him with John Bell Hood, a capable division commander who had lost an arm at Antietam and a leg at Gettysburg. But he was not the best at being in charge of an entire army. He led a series of disastrous bloody charges that wrecked his army and forced him to evacuate Atlanta. On his way out, his soldiers burned part of the city. Sherman did not want to sit in Atlanta and ordered everyone out of the city, 
while his men finished the job and burned Atlanta again. After capturing Atlanta, Sherman turned his army east and began his infamous March to the Sea. His army spread out in three columns covering 60 miles and wrecked havoc on the countryside. His goal was to wage a psychological war on the southern people who were totally demoralized by the march. His men destroyed railroads, they took livestock and food, and they destroyed cotton mills and anything else which might aid the Confederate war effort. Sherman made strict orders against hurting civilians, but such crimes did occur despite his best efforts to stop them. The memory of his march is far more brutal than the reality, but it still led to widespread misery and suffering designed to break the will of the people and end the war quickly. In the process of his march, thousands of runaway slaves flocked to Union lines, and Sherman once said, quote, They gather around me in crowds, and I cannot find out whether I am Moses or Aaron, but surely I am graded as one of the congregation. End quote. But unfortunately, Sherman was not a big advocate of equality or emancipation, and he tried to prevent slaves from following his army and slow it down. In the process, some African Americans were left behind and were either recaptured or killed by Confederates. Regardless, on December 22, 1864, Sherman captured Savannah as a Christmas present for Lincoln. His army then turned north and marched through South Carolina where they were far more destructive in burning plantations. Then they marched all the way up to North Carolina, where they remained for the end of the war. So you may be asking, where's General Hood in all of this? Well, he decided to reinvade Tennessee, hoping to draw Sherman out. And Sherman said, quote, If he will go to the Ohio River, I'll give him rations. My business is down south. End quote. Waiting for Hood in Tennessee was a fresh Union army under George Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. Hood wrecked his army in bloody frontal assaults at Franklin, Tennessee, and later Chattanooga, and from that point on in late 1864, the Army of the Tennessee ceased to be an effective military fighting force. It was all used up. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Death of Slavery. As stated earlier, Lincoln knew that the Supreme Court, dominated by Southerners and their sympathizers, would make a meal of his executive actions under his war powers. In addition, they'd most likely target much of the acts passed by Congress. So Lincoln needed a constitutional amendment to protect the gains of freedom. And Lincoln also knew it had to be done now, as quickly as possible, lest the Confederate states re-enter the Union and vote down the amendment. Many radical Republicans did not trust him, and conservative Republicans did not want to go along with the abolition of slavery. So it took some chicanery and politicking, and it was barely passed by a few votes in the House of Representatives. The 13th Amendment was officially passed on January 31, 1865, and was ratified by the states by December 6, 1865. It became the first of three Reconstruction Amendments, and there's two important clauses you should know. First, Section 1 states, quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for the crime whereof the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2 states, quote, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. 
Now that phrase gives Congress the ability to legislate to enforce this amendment in what we call interventionary government. Whenever you see that phrase, that is the legal and constitutional justification for future legislation by Congress. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The War's End. Meanwhile, back at the Siege of Petersburg, Lee's army was being hurt by desertions. By July 1864, Lee had 50,000 men present, but by September 10th, it was down to 38,000. The Confederates worked hard to catch deserters, and they expanded their draft from ages 17 to 50, so that by the end of November, Lee's army was back to 62,000 people, at least on paper. But still, their morale was low. They were running out of supplies. And by February 1865, the troop numbers were back down to 50,000. From March 25th to April 2nd, 1865, there was great fighting between the two armies all along the lines. And on April 2nd, Grant launched a massive final assault on Lee's thinly guarded lines. The Union attack broke through Lee's lines, and the Confederate army abandoned their position and headed westward. Lee then telegraphed Davis that Richmond must be evacuated. On the night of April 2nd, after setting fire to many of the buildings, Lee abandoned Richmond with 35,000 men. The next day, Lincoln went to see the conquered city, guarded by a regiment of black cavalrymen. Freed slaves poured into the streets to cheer Lincoln, and one old black woman said, quote, I know I am free, for I have seen Father Abraham and felt him. End quote. Meanwhile, Lee moved the rest of his army west towards the railroad junction at Appomattox Courthouse. He wanted to unite with Joseph E. Johnston's army, which was still opposing Sherman in North Carolina. But meanwhile, Grant's army pursued Lee. On April 8th, Philip Sheridan's Union forces moved around Lee and blocked his retreat at Appomattox. With nowhere to go and few supplies in a worn-out army, Lee decided to ask Grant for terms. Some Confederates urged Lee to break up the army and take to the mountains to fight it out as guerrillas. But Lee dismissed the idea. Enough blood had been shed, and guerrilla war would only bring further misery to the South. Thus, on April 9, 1865, Lee formally surrendered his army of 20,000 men. Confederate forces, led by Georgian Brigadier General John B. Gordon, stacked their arms and gave up their tattered battle flags. Accepting the surrender was the hero of Gettysburg, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who had been promoted to Brigadier General after suffering a near-fatal wound at Petersburg. Both sides later romantically reminisced about the encounter, with Chamberlain writing, quote, Instructions had been given, and when the head of each division column comes opposite our own, our bugle sounds, the signal is given, and instantly our whole line from right to left, regiment by regiment, in succession, gives a soldier salutation from the order of arms to the old carry, the marching salute. Gordon, at the head of the column, riding with heavy spirit and downcast face, catches the sound of shifting arms, looks up, and taking the meaning, wheels superbly with profound salutation as he drops the point of his sword to the boot toe, then facing his own command, gives word for a successive brigades to pass us with the same position of the manual, honor, answering honor, end quote. While greatly romanticized in writing and film, U.S. and Confederate forces fiercely hated one another, and a long process of reconciliation would follow, 
but the enmity would never truly die away. On April 14th, Good Friday, Lincoln attended the British play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater. In the middle of the play, 27-year-old pro-Confederate actor John Wilkes Booth, who at that point was drinking a bottle of bourbon a day, shot Lincoln in the back of the head. He then jumped from the president's pew down to the stage. He raised a dagger and reportedly shouted the phrase, Sick Semper Tyrannis, meaning, thus always to tyrants, a Latin phrase attributed to Marcus Brutus at Caesar's assassination. Lincoln lingered in agony in a nearby house and finally died the next day. As he passed, his Secretary of War, Edward Stanton, said, quote, Now he belongs to the ages. End quote. Later that day, Andrew Johnson was sworn in as president, and the question became, how would the Southern-born former Tennessee senator handle the delicate question of reconstruction of the South? Two weeks later, on April 26th, Joseph Johnston formally surrendered the last major Confederate army to Sherman at Durham Station, North Carolina. A few small Confederate forces still held out out west, but most surrendered by June, while a few generals and Confederate politicians fled the country for Cuba and South America. In the end, though, many returned to take the oath of allegiance, and the war was over. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences. The consequences of the American Civil War cannot be understated. The Union was saved, and the Confederate States of America was no more. But Northerners still wrestled with the question of under what condition would the formerly seceded states be allowed to re-enter the Union. Second, the Civil War caused at least 750,000 military deaths, mostly due to disease. And we have no firm number on the amount of civilian deaths, but it certainly numbers in the thousands. Third, the Southern economy, including towns, farmland, railroads, and industry, was wrecked. 50% of Confederate livestock was dead. 50% of Confederate farming machinery was destroyed. Currency was scarce or non-existent and many farms were left destitute by Confederate and Union foragers alike. Fourth, and most importantly, it was the death of slavery. This was not a Union goal at the beginning of the war, but due to the exigencies of the conflict, including the desire to undermine the Confederacy, and increased pressure from radicals and abolitionists, as well as by the actions of Union commanders and ex-slaves, this eventually made emancipation a reality. In December 1865, as previously stated, the 13th Amendment was finally ratified, abolishing the sin of slavery in the United States. It was amazing, because by today's standards, the country was still very racist. But there is a question now. What will become of the 4 million freed people? Will they be citizens, or something else? The war did not answer this question. The last major consequence of the war was the status of women and African Americans. Both groups had served in ways previously denied to them, and despite the fact that their actions proved their worth and abilities, political power was only begrudgingly bestowed upon black men later, while women waited another 50 years for the political rights of citizenship that they were due. The Civil War left many unanswered questions. What will become of the rebels? Will there be executions? Trials? Pardons? In every other rebellion in history, 
Traitors are lined up against a wall and shot. But can Americans do that to one another? Another question is how will the southern states re-enter the Union? Will it be immediate? Conditional? What will the process be? How will Reconstruction proceed? Would it be economic? Political? Social? What will become of the free people? Will they get the rights of citizens? The right to vote? Will they get compensation for their servitude? These questions would shape post-war America, and some are hotly debated to this day. Well, that's all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.